0: Hello and welcome to all things women's health. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Stroup. I'm <music> an obstetrician, gynecologist, a so husband, a father, a grandfather, small business owner, I'm a Catholic, I'm a lot of things. Uh, but Right now, I'm your host as we discuss all things women's health, and we'll always do it from an authentically Catholic perspective. It doesn't matter if it's childbirth or infertility, pregnancy loss, menopause, homeschooling, or personal trainers. If it involves women and their health, it's on our agenda. And joining me for this episode are two of my physician partners, Dr. Jill Stalling and Dr. Stephanie Grover, remarkable women physician friends and surgeons both our topic today involves changing your mind i'd say or more specifically changing your mind after having your tube set up. or even more broadly even if your tubes or tube uh, have been damaged by an ectopic pregnancy or an infection or even endometriosis is pregnancy possible after this is it possible to undo this decision or damage Is pregnancy a realistic possibility for a woman after she's had her tube side? If so, what is involved? Who's a good candidate? What are the risks, the alternatives, the cost? We'll talk about all of these questions and a lot more. So get comfortable as we get to know a lot more about pregnancy options after tubal ligation and tubal damage. We'll be right back with all things women's health. Welcome back to All Things Women's Health. And thanks for joining me in this edition dedicated to pregnancy after tubal damage or even tubal ligation. So, as I said, I'm joined by two good friends and colleagues, Dr. Jill Stalling and Dr. Stephanie Grover. Ladies, welcome.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: So let's start with uh, let's start with the easy stuff. Let's start with a little bit about each of you. So, Dr. Stalling, why don't you go first and help listeners sort of understand the journey that led you to to here at FMCC
1: sure yeah well, i grew up uh as a corn in nebraska one of six children didn't decide until late in college that i wanted to do medical school uh, then i attended creighton university in omaha then traveled down to ku in wichita kansas to complete my ob 2 residency down there underwent a conversion process during my residency program transition to NFP only, OBGYN. And then later in residency, sought uh, how to live that out more fully. And through my searching, found uh, the fellowship program of medical and surgical naprotechnology at the Pope Paul Institute in Omaha, which is right in my own backyard. And I had no idea it was there originally, which is kind of funny how God works. So I attended a fellowship program under Dr. Thomas Hilgers there in 2010, 2011. Then traveled there from there to uh, Peoria, Illinois and practiced for eight years in private practice as well as in a hospital employment situation. Then transitioned out here to Fertility Metaphorea Care Center searching to uh, more fully uh, incorporate NFP in a private practice setting uh, so moved to my whole family out here. Uh, yeah. Now, speaking yeah. of family,
0: along the way, where did you get married? And uh, tell us about that part of the journey.
1: Yeah, so I actually got married uh, right uh, as I finished college, married my high school sweetheart, Brian. Uh, and then um, he actually worked while I was in medical school to support the family. And then once I transitioned to residency, he became a stay-at-home dad. So I had my first child uh, right before my third year of medical school, which was a challenge going into <laughs> the clinical rotations and adjusting as a first-time mom there, and then had my second and uh, third daughters in residency. And then when I was in Peoria, Illinois, I had my three sons
0: well and that that brings you to us so um let's let's pause there and dr grobner you do the same uh you, you just joined fmcc back in the late summer early fall of 22 help uh listeners understand the journey that led you to to here
2: yeah so um i'm originally from the upper peninsula of michigan a a uper okay. not a husker um, I went to Northern Michigan University uh, for my undergraduate, uh, met my husband there, um, and uh, a lot of parallels between my story and Dr. Stalling's uh, met my husband in college, and we were married at the at the end of uh, my uh, time there at northern um, applied to many different medical schools um, uh, third year of college, and um, was accepted to quite a few, but ultimately chose uh, the uh, Osteopathic University at Michigan State. Um, My mentor, Dr. Barry Whitmer, had gone there and um, uh, really looked up to what she um, had uh, emulated as a female physician. So I found that to be a really great, great fit. Um, so I was in East Lansing for the first two years of medical school and then, like Dr. Stalling, had my first child at the end of uh, my second year of medical school, uh, which um, was uh, very challenging, but also probably the reason I'm sitting here today at um, having a, um, a really wonderful birth experience uh, was kind of what led me to uh, choosing ob as a specialty. Um, when I started my clinical rotations, uh, my preceptors would say, what um, what specialties are you thinking about? And I would say, I'm open to all of them except ob <laughs> And then um, finding myself uh, sort of reflecting on my birth experience as well as getting into the operating room and finding that I really liked Liked procedures, uh, liked working with my hands, and um, being able to help people in that way uh, really led me to to that decision. Um, that brought us to uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan for the next uh, six years uh, for clinical rotations and my residency, um, did my ob residency at Metro Health Hospital there. And then uh, practiced up in Marquette, Michigan, for about eight years after uh, after graduation in a private practice there. Um, had a um, conversion to uh, natural family planning um, in my practice about six years uh, into my time in Marquette, and uh, decided to. Um, uh, choose a practice that was uh, fully on board with uh, natural family planning as a practice approach. Uh, we then spent kind of a short stint uh, at the St. Gianna Clinic in Green Bay, and from there uh, was accepted into the uh, same fellowship that Dr. Stalling completed um, last year, so um, twenty. 21 to 2022, um, we picked up our uh, family of five and uh, moved moved the whole, um, the whole circus <laughs> to Omaha, Nebraska for a year and uh, spent a year there in fellowship uh, learning uh, the NAPRO approach to uh, women's health and uh, particularly uh, the surgical approach to women's health. Uh, which was a, a really a wonderful experience. Really glad we did it. And then uh, looking move the for yeah. move the circus again um, after fellowship, uh, needed to find a job <laughs> and um, found a, a very a great position here at uh, fertility midwifery care in Fort Wayne.
0: The parallels are pretty interesting with, with you two. I feel like we should come back and do a separate episode just on um, Women in Madison who got married young and had a lot of children. That seems like <laughs> it seems like both of you should have a fair amount of expertise to uh, to share there. So we'll do that in another episode. But you know, we're talking about pregnancy after tubal issue, you might say, and, and specifically, you know, we can start with uh, maybe a description of what are the reasons that a listener might be thinking, Wow, I, I have Tubal issues, and now I'm thinking I wish I could be pregnant. What are some of those issues that women could could have?
2: I think a lot of times it's unexplained infertility. You know, if um, if they're trying to achieve pregnancy, and a lot of other things have been looked at, and everything else seems to be functioning normally. Um, that is certainly one of the things that should be checked out to see when
0: if- you say that, you mean the status of their tube.
2: Yep. To see if, if they're open. Um, and then we say too, you know, is there, you know, something going on? Um, and I think one of the neat things about the NAPRO approach is we can look at each tube individually, um, to, to examine that and, and get a really, um, specific idea of what's going on with each tube.
0: Yeah, one of my favorite things to say is so-called unexplained infertility all too often is uninvestigated infertility. Uh, And to your point, you know, that's one of the things that we do is ask those fundamental yet sometimes complicated questions of what could be wrong. Um, So so unexplained uh, tubal issue might be a reason that a woman would be thinking about pregnancy with tubal issues. Jill, what are some other things that might bring a patient to thinking that?
1: So other... Different causes um, can lead to blockage of fallopian tubes. So, one of the most common that we'll run into would be something called iatrogenic, which means caused by a physician or caused by a healthcare provider.
0: It's a fancy word, but it, it doesn't—it doesn't have a fancy meaning. It's kind of sad, but it, it means we did something
1: right. Correct. Um, So that would be like a tubal ligation. Yeah, sterilization procedure. Sterilization procedure would be the common terminology for that sort of a thing. When women have not had that history surgically, other causes can be previous infection. Most notorious would be chlamydia infection or other pelvic inflammatory disease causes. Endometriosis can cause that inflammation of the fallopian tube by other causes, something called salpingitis ithmicondosum, or SIN for short. Well, good,
0: so let's focus, maybe we can take those kind of uh, one by one, but let's, let's talk for a bit about the woman who's had her tube side. And now for whatever reason, she's thinking that was a mistake. There's, there's actually some research that, that describes how commonly this happens, right?
2: Yeah, it can be fairly common. Um, when you look at the literature, up to forty percent of the time there can be regret there. And you know, I see women uh, not uncommonly in the office for this, and and they feel a lot of a lot of guilt about it. And that's that's a hard thing um, to talk through with them. But fortunately, um, there are. Uh, potentially options to to help with that situation. you know before I
0: learned to practice the right way and stop tying women's tubes, I can remember those conversations with young women and they would be absolutely adamant that they were certain that they never wanted to be pregnant again. and then I remember meeting them again three years, five years, seven years later, and whatever was so absolute and so certain now has has changed. Uh, but if you think about it, it could be uh, a, new, a new marriage, a new relationship, or just changed feelings about, you know, how many children you want in your family. Or have you yeah. seen that in your practice where women, you know, come back with those regrets?
2: Absolutely. Um, I think it's it's really tough. You know, a lot of times these decisions are being made um, when we're, uh, when we've just had a baby or maybe even as we're having a baby, um, you know, Someone's encountering maybe an unplanned C-section, and and the physician, uh, perhaps with good intention, is saying, you know, do you want a tubal with that? Um, and and it's it's obvious this is not a simple decision that should be made in the heat of the moment at the bedside. Um, you know, whether it's it's then or it's it's after delivery, it's a it's a very uh, emotional. Hormonally charged time and, um, and And then you get you get past that uh, period of time and and yeah, there can be a lot of regret a lot of guilt So so someone is
0: listening to us who's had their tube side um, And they're in that maybe 40 percent of women who now regret the decision um, What do we have to offer them is it even a possibility that they could become pregnant uh, and if so What's that going to involve?
1: So initially it's going to involve a consultation to see if they are a candidate for reversal of the tubal.
0: Yeah, there's a few words, you know, medicine, we love our vocabulary, but you said reversal. We'll sometimes hear that tubal reversal. We sometimes use the word re-anastomosis, which is a bizarre word. To anastomosis to put together, so to re-put together. Someone's tubes, but I think those are the most common terms that we hear used. use, but a tubal reversal would be to put them back together again um, So it's possible um, What are some of the questions that you're going to ask or, or Indirectly or directly ask of a woman who's had her tubes tied and now she's interested
1: Yeah, so we would talk through really the her desire and, and what that looks like, what her um, future looks like as far as how many pregnancies she's interested in, um, as well as reviewing the operative report from the tubal procedure to see... What is it you're looking
0: for there in that operative report?
1: So in there are different ways to perform a tubal ligation. So the intention with that procedure is to block off the tube in some fashion. Historically, it's commonly occurred where you take a a small portion of the midsection of the fallopian tube, or you put a clip on it, or some other uh, type of approach, where most of the fallopian tube, including kind of the delicate petals on the flower, if you will, the fimbria at the end of the tube, are left in place. More commonly in the last handful of years, especially a lot of OBGYNs and those who do tubal ligations, quote unquote, are actually removing the majority of the fallopian tube, including that fimbriated end or that the petals on the flower.
0: Yeah, and we often refer to that as salpingectomy, mm-hmm. ectomy to remove salpingo tube, so to remove the tube. And, and sadly, there's no hope for reversing if that tube is gone. So you're looking for, um, did the procedure they have performed, did it leave them the possibility of reversal, correct? Correct. Yeah. And uh, What what are some of the details that might influence your decision, Stephanie? Is this a patient? Is she a candidate or not a patient? Not a candidate.
2: So it'll be important to look at the, the operative note from the original sterilization procedure. Um, and some of the key things we're looking for is, was it a... Salpingectomy, and and that's kind of you know one word, or was it a partial salpingectomy, which indicates that only part of the tube, usually the midsection part, was removed. So that's kind of the important things we're looking at with the um, the previous operative note. If it looks like it was a partial salpingectomy, then um, then there there would be Uh, Certainly consideration for reversal if if that's what the woman desires
0: Does it (laughs) matter to you as the surgeon if it was done at the time of a c-section or at at another time as a freestanding procedure and does it matter if they use clips metal clips or plastic clips or if they use cautery Talk to each of those sort of points
2: Fair question Uh, when you look at the data um, it does not seem to matter significantly how it was done, as long as as it was uh, as long as it was partial.
0: So burned versus clipped, mm-hmm. versus clipped doesn't really matter, mm-hmm. and C-section versus a freestanding procedure that doesn't. Seem that important.
2: shouldn't matter either. No. But
0: with men who desire a vasectomy reversal, uh, my understanding is the amount of time that's lapsed since the vasectomy is of critical importance. How about with women in the circumstances that matter?
2: What I could find, or what I'm aware of, is it has more to do with the woman's age. Mm-hmm. So the the chance that it will be successful does tend to go down with age. So the younger, <clears throat> excuse me, the younger you are, <clears throat> the more likely it is that it will be successful. Um, the 37, for some reason, seemed to be a uh, a number that the literature really seemed to hone in on. So under 37, a higher chance, over 37, it starts to go down a bit. It doesn't completely preclude doing the surgery, but just having that awareness that it might not be as successful. Sure.
0: Well, uh, before we talk about success rates and that sort of thing, let's talk about um, the technique or techniques themselves. So. Um, You see a patient, you think that she is a candidate based on what you can know about her tubal ligation. Um, Jill, what are the techniques that are available to try to put these tube segments back together again?
1: Sure. Great question. So, in general, there are a few ways to approach the surgery. It could either be done as a mini open surgery, which has kind of traditionally been done for many, many years. Now with the advent of a lot of advanced laparoscopic approaches, especially robotic approaches, that has been incorporated into the area of tubal rene as well.
0: And so uh, you do that, the more traditional version with the so-called many laparotomy approach, correct? Um, and uh, seventy, you do the robotic approach. So which one of you is better at this? Uh, <laughs> is, is one method better than the other? Is it personal preference? Is, it, is there something about a given patient that makes her a better candidate for one versus the other, or does it matter?
2: You know, the literature hasn't shown that um, the success rate is any different one way or another. So I think it would really come down to um, having a conversation with the patient, what both of those pe- uh, procedures entail, and uh, from there, what their preferences might be. I think one important thing to note is um, it's many times we'll recommend a diagnostic procedure uh, before we even uh, plan for the the tubal reanastomosis. And and the reason for that would be uh, a few reasons. Uh, One, um, it's important that there's at least four centimeters of a tube remaining um, on both ends um, so that uh, sort of logically speaking, there's enough to bring back together and um, enough to, um, so that um, conception can occur. And would you say it's
0: it's difficult, if not impossible, to know that without looking?
2: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
0: So a diagnostic laparoscopy maybe to figure out if you're a candidate, but then which method, open versus robotic, probably is going to come down to surgeon skill, surgeon preference, yeah. uh, which you're comfortable with.
2: I think the other advantage to um, doing a diagnostic procedure first to, to examine um, the abdomen and pelvis would be to see if there's other disease present. Because if if they do have other disease present, then they might be better off with planning a robotic procedure where we can address some of the other other things going on. Yeah. What
0: about weight and BMI and obesity? Uh, How, if if at all, does that play into a patient's options for having your tubes reconnected?
1: Good question. So we do know that um, women who experience and, and deal with obesity do have a more difficult time achieving pregnancy as well as have higher miscarriage rates. So understanding that piece kind of in the whole picture is important to know. From a surgical approach perspective, um, Really, both robotic approaches and many like open incisions can be done in either category. Typically, though, with obesity, if you're doing an open incision, the incision has to be a little bit larger to be able to gain access to the space that you need uh, to do the procedure. So, um, could be more technically challenging. So, it can be a little bit more technically challenging overall. Um, Generally speaking, with a robotic approach, the infection risk is less. The blood loss risk is less compared with open incision and and typically able to go home within a few hours after surgery as well. So the recovery is a little bit faster yeah. uh, from that approach. But I think um, both of us could do actually either robotic or open sure. um, approaches to, to the... To getting that dresses. job done. Yeah.
0: So you've met someone, they seem like a good candidate. Uh, Now it's time to talk about actually doing it via whichever method. How do we speak to uh, success rates and the probability of pregnancy uh, after this procedure?
2: Well, I'd love to say that it can work all the time, every time. the success success rates are not, um, not unreasonable. Uh, we say up to 80% of the time it will work. And again, that comes down to um, health of the tube, uh, health of the patient, age. Um, there's different things that play into it, but um, many times it can be successful. And I think uh, the one interesting thing to think about is um, it's... Um, you know, when you look at the literature, it's it's less invasive than something like IVF. And it also, uh, cost-wise, tends to be more cost-effective. Um, it's
0: interesting. I mean, even if it were 20% success, it's 20% versus zero. So anything is greater, any number is greater than zero, but uh, but 80% is certainly, uh, I mean, that's approaching what you might think of as natural pregnancy rates, Um so then it, it, what are some of the risks you might say uh, of having the tubes put back together at any?
1: So one of the obvious risks is undergoing surgery, right? Surgery just in general. right, um, carries risks um, associated with it, um, just kind of innately. So um, so that, as well as the recovery to go along with that, um, but with a tubal renostomosis procedure, you actually increase risk for an ectopic pregnancy. So some of the research shows that depending upon where it happens, where the reinostomosis or reconnection is needed within the tube can play a role in the rate of ectopic pregnancy. But generally, it's, is, it's quoted as about 2.5 to maybe up to 5%, depending on the study that you look at. Of getting an ectopic pregnancy. Of experiencing an ectopic pregnancy. And
0: right. so I think that's always a challenge. Someone's had this procedure done they get a positive pregnancy test. And before they're too joyful, they've got to remember that it could be stuck in this recently operated on uh, tube. Um, but still, those numbers are mm-hmm. absolutely pretty low um, for, you know, compared to zero chance of getting uh, pregnant at all. What are some of the other topics that need to be considered? So the risk of ectopic, the general surgery risk, what else comes to mind?
2: Generally speaking, uh, it's a good idea to check the tubes after someone would have this type of procedure. And, and see if there is patency. Uh, generally, uh, about three months later, we would check and see if, if there's patency there. And I, I generally tell patients to hold off on trying to conceive until we see that uh, result. Is of
0: this risk of ectopic
2: mm-hmm. or triple pregnancy? Yep, A lot, giving time to allow the tubes to heal.
0: Yeah, so pretty good success rate. It's pretty minimal risks beyond sort of the generic um, surgery risk. I mean, That sounds great. I think, as as I'm thinking about it, kind of the white elephant, it almost seems in the room, is this problem with self-injectomy. I just don't get a sense that women who are consenting to self-injectomy today actually understand that reversal is never an option. There is nothing we can do if the tube is gone. Um, Has that been your experience, or what are your thoughts on that?
2: I think there's misconception about um, the procedure that's going to happen. Um, again, a lot of these decisions are being made uh, either in the heat of the moment or the aftermath of the moment. and. Um, there's not a good understanding of if I want to go back on this, do I have that option? So it it really goes back to any time you're making a healthcare decision, having a a good and thorough understanding and conversation with your doctor.
0: Yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, But, you know, to your point, it happens in the heat of the moment with maybe days of sleep deprivation and what can seem like a great idea. Um, And then in fairness, we should probably speak to why gynecologists now are doing salpingectomies instead of the old traditional tubal ligations. You you all speak to that.
1: So a lot of OBGYNs are proceeding with the salpingectomy because there's uh, evidence to show that there's a lower risk for ovarian cancer. With with the tube gone. If you remove the tube, right, correct.
0: And I've lost track of time, but I think that feeling it's been around about 5 maybe 7 years is that
2: close Yeah back when I was in medical school and I would think you both would attest to this mm-hmm. cancer of the fallopian tube was felt to be extremely rare obscure thing you read about mm-hmm. Yeah <laughs> Yeah I don't
0: remember the day that it sort of flipped and the recommendation came out to take tubes out but it's not because surgeons are being know careless or wanting women not to have a choice in the future trying to protect them from a tubal or an ovarian cancer which seems noble but I think back to the informed consent point it um, it's hard to understand if the woman really understands what she's saying yes to especially uh, in that moment so if there is tube there there's an opportunity to repair it and with numbers that sound um, sound pretty successful Um, having seen those patients who get pregnant it's, it's very exciting. I mean, it's very positive when someone realizes that you know they made a mistake, they got that mistake corrected, and now they're pregnant again. So that's a good feeling. So having your tube side and then having reanastomosis is a possibility. What about some of these other things that we talked about at the beginning of reasons that a woman would be experiencing infertility that's tubal related, endometriosis, infection, those kinds of things. Is there hope for those women using this surgical technique that
2: you do? Absolutely. Um, I've, you can definitely see blockages from endometriosis affecting the tube. And as long as the blockage isn't so far encompassing that you still have an, back to that four centimeters of healthy tube that you can uh, work with, there's absolutely hope for um, repair and healing there. Uh, patients that have had infections in the past that maybe have affected the tubes. Um, that's usually a, a different procedure called a fimbrioplasty, where we're helping the, the fimbria at the end of the tube, which is the part that that gets the, the egg from uh, the ovary and kind of scoops it up into the tube. That's usually the uh, part of the tube that's affected in in this situation. But uh, there's, there's absolutely still um, kind of a, a similar but different approach we can use to, to help that tube to be functional again.
0: Yeah, you know, as I, as I hear you describe that, I'm thinking of many discussions I've had often in the middle of the night um, with an ectopic pregnancy um, where maybe it's ruptured and surgery needs to be done, but if the surgeon is, is able and willing They could remove that ectopic with an eye towards the future, to have someone like one of you go back in later on and maybe put that tube back together again. Uh, But of course, they have to be thinking that it's the middle of the night. Maybe they they wouldn't think that. But listeners, if you were to find yourself needing surgery for an ectopic pregnancy, you could you know be very clear with your surgeon. Try to leave tube for someone else to repair. Whether you yourself do that repair or not doesn't matter. But maybe leave the option for someone else to go back in and, and repair that tube. Uh, because that, you know, that would certainly be tragic if it was, the entire tube was taken out unnecessarily. But what about, so ectopic pregnancy, uh, what about tubal damage maybe from infection, like say chlamydia, the most common uh, among them? Is that a possibility?
2: It is, uh, depending what part of the tube is affected. Um, and that that kind of goes back to that um, diagnostic procedure. Where we would be able to look at the tubes and kind of assess uh, which part is affected, how much of it is affected, and uh, what might need to be done for correction. So uh,
0: let, let's go back a little bit to the consultation appointment um, that you mentioned. Why is why is that so important?
1: A consultation appointment is important so we can really evaluate the health of the whole woman. Um, to understand um, if she's a good and proper candidate for the procedure and to help her to understand the process, um, potential costs associated with it, um, expectations, et cetera. Yeah, and I think simplistically,
0: you know, yes, she may have had her tube tied in the past, but she also may have stage four endometriosis. And just repairing her tubes would be short sighted. You know we need to find those things and and repair them or a whole host of other medical things mm-hmm. that could be impacting our fertility right correct um, so i mean it seems to me the take home there is this is not an assembly line you don't just show up and get your tubes put back together again but you know it's going to take some work some evaluation and a relationship but we we've we've talked around cost a little bit um and dr grover you mentioned that it was Less expensive than in vitro fertilization. What kind of costs for the average person are we are we talking about?
2: Yeah, so um, if If the um, if the reason we're doing the surgery is because of a prior sterilization uh, Most insurance companies won't cover that sadly, right? um, but um, at least at our center, we've worked with the hospital to generate an out-of-pocket cost that is achievable for most women. Um, And certainly, like we were talking about, cheaper, much cheaper than IVF. um, And and particularly in the long run for people that are planning on more more than one baby.
0: Oh, right. Yeah, I mean, I think if you, um, in round numbers, um, here at DuPont Hospital in Fort Wayne, Indiana, it's in the nine to 11, thousand dollar range total um and if you do a little bit of research on IVF, to your point you'd find that it's easily double if not three times that um, so yes from a cost effective standpoint and then again to your point you might have six more kids after that so it gets cheaper per child the more kids you have
2: <laughs> something <laughs> to consider yeah
0: that's right so it relatively affordable at least compared uh to some of the other options well, you know, in the time that we we have remaining, what are sort of what are sort of the top things that listeners should take away from this discussion?
2: Well, I think going back to the costs too, um, you know, some insurance companies um, are more likely to cover the procedure if the pathology is due to something other than sterilization, and so keeping that in mind, if it's if it's due to some other reason. Um, to
0: endometriosis or something yeah. could be covered. Mm-hmm. So that's an important takeaway, certainly.
1: I think that to understand that there is hope that is there, um, even if you've had your tubes tied in the past and you come to regret that later in life for whatever the underlying reasons are, um, that it is not a dead end. Yeah there's hope there
0: not all of our mis- bad decisions from youth can be repaired but this one can at least in some cases so that that is reason for hope that's that's good news well i listeners i hope you've enjoyed this discussion as much as i have i hope that, that you've learned a lot more about these options that there is hope uh, as dr stalling said that um, just because something has gone wrong or you've made a bad decision with respect to your fertility um, there is hope. Um, if You can learn a lot more about these options for families by calling our office. You can arrange a consultation with Dr. Stalling or Dr. Grosvenor, including telemedicine options for those of you that don't live in Fort Wayne. For either an in-person or a telemedicine, simply call our office at 260-222-7401 uh, and either option is available to you. Uh, either we we'll would be happy to see you and uh and start talking about your options. If you've had your tube side in the past, you can save yourself a little time by getting a hold of your medical records uh, before that consultative visit uh, and bring those uh, with you. Preferably send them all in advance of uh, your visit. But I want to thank you for listening to another episode of All Things Women's Health. I hope you'll like and subscribe to the podcast and tell everybody you know about us. If you have comments or questions or topics you'd like to hear more about, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at drstroud at fertilityandmidwifery.com. I'll be back soon with another episode of All Things Women's Health and always from an authentically Catholic perspective. Thanks again for listening. I'm Dr. Chris Stroud.